everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. And here on this podcast, we talk about healthcare and politics and feminism and parenthood and prenatal care and everything else having to do with, you know, this whole big, big subject about what it means to be a woman, be a parent, be raising a family uh, in the world today. And every week we tackle, you know, one little slice of it. So like last week, we talked with um, Keisha Yeres, who escaped an abusive marriage and used running to help herself heal. And now she's a triathlete, a single mom, and she is just killing it out there. I think that conversation was about bravery and resilience and strength and determination, all the stuff you need to be a good parent. And uh, the week before, we talked about the role postpartum doulas play in helping new moms heal and start their motherhood on a solid platform. Um, But we also answered some listener emails about bacterial vaginosis and herpes. And boy, was that popular. A lot of people are worried about that subject, those subjects. And that just kind of gives you a pretty, pretty good clue as to how common it is. And yet so many people feel alone with it. They feel so frightened by it because they feel like they're carrying it all by themselves. Um, So anyway, my point is that we talk about a lot of issues that illustrate the challenges and the solutions that parents and women and healthcare providers face while they're navigating the world of parenthood. It's a minefield, people, and we need all the guidance we can get, right? Okay, so what's going on? It's February in Portland, which means rain, rain, rain. We're getting a break in it today. And uh, the whole neighborhood is going out, just, you know, gathering up any little scrap of sunshine we can get. And it's actually really beautiful right now. It's not too cold. There's lots of little bulbs and crocus that are poking their heads out. It's really nice. It's, it's, I can't complain too much. And in February, I usually do. (laughs) Um... I got an email from a labor nurse this week, and uh, I'm not going to use her name. Nurses are pretty protective about airing their grievances and their concerns, um, usually because, you know, they're concerned that their employers might hear about it and give them grief for it on the job. Um, In this nurse's email, she said she's been working in labor and delivery for four years and she loves it. Yeah, I bet. There's a lot to love about that gig. I loved being a labor nurse. Um, anyway, she recently switched to a new position at a different hospital. Um, and she finds herself suddenly working in a hospital with a really high C-section and high intervention rate. They hire midwives at this hospital. And so she kind of thought it would be a mellower environment, but not so much. She's not happy working in a place that does that many unnecessary procedures. And to make matters more complicated, she says that nurses don't speak up at the new hospital. They don't have any decision-making power. It's all about the doctors and the hospital administrators, also known as the ones who bring in the money and the ones who decide how the money is spent. Nurses do neither of those things. Nurses are expenses to be paid for. They provide services, but they're not money generators. And that is another reason why You know, it leaves them out of the power position. Also, nurses in labor and delivery units are predominantly women. 
And, you know, there are some men who work labor and delivery, but not that many. Nurses do most of the patient care. They're highly educated and trained, and they're very technically and medically skilled to take care of laboring women and their babies all day, all night long. They even possess skills and areas of expertise that doctors just don't have. But nurses are paid less than doctors and midwives, and they don't have that much power on the unit. So this nurse's question to me was how she could change the culture in her hospital so they do fewer C-sections and so nurses can speak up. Damn, that's a good question. I'm hoping I can get this nurse on the podcast down the road so we can really talk this out. For now, though, I think she's really brave to take this on. I'm so grateful there are nurses like her who are willing to start these conversations and challenge power dynamics from the inside. She's got a big job ahead of her, but I'd wager she's not alone. I bet there are other nurses on her unit who feel frustrated about patient care and would be willing to come together to raise their voices together, Um, have conversations with the nurse administration, have conversations with doctors who are particularly quick to intervene. Um, You know, there's, there's power and there's safety in numbers, and we are sure seeing that around the country, especially in women's professions and in women's voices. This is a perfect opportunity for advocacy, for better care for pregnant women and better treatment for nurses. That said, the power dynamic in most hospitals is top-down authoritarian, with doctors at the top and administrators right under them, and it's not going to be an easy, quick fix. Culture is always the hardest and slowest thing to change, and culture of care in hospitals is no exception. I hope this nurse will continue to love her work and to deliver the best patient care possible, even when that contrasts with the high intervention care her hospital prefers. I hope this nurse will persist, and I'm going to be rooting for her. Uh, Let's see. So this week, our guest... I'm really excited about this conversation. We are going to talk to a professional lobbyist who advocates on Capitol Hill for policy related to maternal and child health, reproductive health and health care, and a range of related topics. And, you know, come on, with so much going on in D.C. and around the world right now, you knew I couldn't stay away from a political conversation for too long, especially considering the potentially dangerous and, you know, even deadly consequences that President Trump's reinstatement of the global gag rule could have. It restricts humanitarian assistance and healthcare services to women in developing countries. So I thought we'd get somebody on the podcast today that can talk all of this through with us and explain what the world of women and maternal health are up against right now. And that somebody is Ben. Let's call him up. Hello, this is Ben. Hi, Ben. It's Jeannie. How are you? Good. How are you, Jeannie? I'm doing good. You're in D.C. and I'm in Portland. Yes. Yeah. We're about to get hit by our, I don't know if it's our third or our fourth snow and ice storm. And uh, we don't like it. What do you got? (laughs) We've got nothing. We've had a a pretty boring winter so far, um, which I guess is good, but it's meant we haven't had any snow days or any real fun yet so hopefully we'll get one one big snow for the season i think we got all of yours 
Brett, <laughs> probably we've gotten so much and the problem is that we get ice you know it's that shuts down the city we can deal with a little bit of snow though portlanders are wimps but <laughs> then you put a nice slick sheet of ice all over everything and there's nothing you can do yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Well, Ben, I want to read your bio, which is really impressive, and then let's start talking about stuff. Are you sound good? Okay. Sounds good. All right. Ben Weingrad is a senior policy advocate at Care USA, where he manages CARE's policy advocacy related to maternal and child health with the United States government. Prior to joining CARE in 2012, Ben served as an advocacy manager at Save the Children, and as foreign policy aide to Senator Christopher Dodd. Ben holds a master's degree in international relations from the London School of Economics and a bachelor from Drew University. Ooh, Ben, you are no slacker. Uh, I wouldn't go that far, but but thank you. (laughs) Well, if you're going to lead in on that, then the next question obviously is, who are you and what do you do? Sure. Um, My name is Ben Weingrad, and I am a senior policy advocate at CARE, the International Humanitarian Organization. And really what I am is a lobbyist for CARE here in D.C. I'm an actual registered lobbyist because I spend at least 30% of my time talking to members of Congress and and people within the U.S. government about policy change. And what I really talk about is how to improve the way the U.S. supports family planning and reproductive health around the world and try to increase the good policies that we do and and really increase how we we look at um, women's health and and anti-poverty efforts in general around the world. And what else do you do? Um, well, for care, I... No, not of, for care. No, not for care. No. We'll talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> this actually leads into a question I was going to ask you, is that um, your job seems like it's all-consuming and, and not a lot of work-life balance there. Am I right? Um, yeah, I think that's that's fairly accurate. Um, you know, I, I think like anyone in Washington, it's a lot of what I do is, is around my work. Um, but it's also partially why I chose this type of work. It allows me to really follow a lot of my passions, which are traveling and service and um, writing and, and communicating, which is something that I do in my spare time as well. So it's 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 a lot of work, but it it weaves into sort of my my personal interests as well. So tell me about that. You do communications and writing in your spare time, in your personal time. What does that mean? Tell me about that. Um, well, I, I've sort of, my, my whole backup plan, if this, uh, this international development <laughs> work ever peters off, is to, you know, go and go and become a novelist or something, because I hear that's a really quick way to, to success and to fortune. Turn it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that, too. I've heard that, too. <laughs> so you would go towards fiction? Not nonfiction? Uh, yeah, probably. It's especially these days when things are complicated and um, difficult um, or, or at least unsettled. It's it's really helpful for me at least to have some sort of creative outlet. Yeah, yeah. I think that having some sort of creative outlet really um, generates the energy for the work. Mm-hmm. It is. It does for me. I mean, I've got creative outlets like um, lately, I've been knitting like mad. 
I knit like crazy and it really helps me generate thoughts. It's, it's important. Yeah. Well, I was also going to, you know, I was thinking about you and I think I've teased you as the dude in maternal health. And I was, um, I realized just how many inaccurate gender norms I attribute to this work that we do, which is all about gender equity, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's not odd for an obstetrician to be a guy. But to me, it seems a little odd that a maternal health senior policy advocate is a guy, which is sexist of me, right? It is. Sexist to an extent. Well, no, I, I wouldn't say sexist, actually. I think it's more... It's it's a reflection of a reality, which yeah. is that men. I I would be lying if I said I wasn't usually the only guy in the room. Yeah. Um. And and that's a reflection, I think, of a a norm and and not necessarily a a positive norm. But I wouldn't go so far as to say sexist. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Some someone um that I uh like very much posted something about blind spots about how many blind spots we all have. And and I agree, it's not often when I'm in a room like the ones that you work in, there's not generally a lot of guys in there. But I don't know, just interesting, interesting perspective. How'd you find your way to this work? It's a, it's a great question. Um, so as you mentioned in my little bio, I Prior to, to working and moving into the NGO world, I worked for a few years for a U.S. senator and did foreign policy work for him, um, which was really a mix of all kinds of things. So it was national security and intelligence and sort of all of that hard stuff, but it was also international development, and that included global health and things like that. And um, I actually used to get lobbied pretty, pretty regularly by CARE and, and worked closely with them on some legislation that we were working on. And then when the senator I worked for retired, it meant I was out of a job. So I, I went to grad school and got a degree thinking I'd really come back and go into government. And what I studied was um, peace building and how you rebuild societies after conflict and state failure and things like that, thinking I'd come back and go into government, maybe the State Department or something like that. And I arrived just as a huge federal hiring freeze occurred. Yeah. Um, so like anybody coming back from getting back into the workforce, I had a lot of coffees. And I had coffee with one of the people who I really admired at CARE, who I work with a lot. And she basically said, listen, I know you're really interested in humanitarian crisis rebuilding, um, but we have a position at CARE that's focused specifically on gender equality, which was my first job at CARE. And she said, I think you should apply for it. And I said, well, you know, I really like CARE and the work you do, and I'm pretty sure I can get behind gender equality. <laughs> and, and that's sort of how I fell into it. And, and over the years, it's shifted really to the reproductive health side of things. But that's really an artificial differentiation. Um, gender equality is really very much wrapped into women's health and reproductive health. Um, but I came into this world without any real training in it. I, I did some look at gender equality and public health in grad school, but not nearly to the level of a lot of people I work with who have MPHs or long histories out in the field working on gender equality issues or reproductive health issues. Um, so that's been interesting. It's kept me on my toes a lot. I bet. It's kind of interesting how how many different roads lead 
to and through this kind of work, you know, the humanitarian sector and gender equity sector. It's interesting. Yeah. So how much travel do you do? Um, not quite as much as I'd like, um, if, if I'm going to be honest. I think what I found in, in this field is there is a really, there's a spot that you hit where you're doing enough travel to really feel connected with the field and the people we work with and a spot where you are just utterly burned out and exhausted. And it is a knife's edge. And the moment you fall off that, you fall off that pretty hard. Mm. So I think I'm I'm pretty happy to be on the, the less travel than I'd like side and the more travel than I'd like. But I try and get out into the field at least once a year. Yeah. Well, that's probably a really smart approach because this isn't going to be a rapidly changing field. This is something that's been... You know, the, the field of gender equity and maternal reproductive health, both here in the U.S. and around the world, has been dragging for a long time. Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's important to to see the work and to, as if, you know, a major part of my job is a communicator and explaining to people, usually very skeptical people, why this work is important and how it works and what it is and what it isn't. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to see that with your own eyes. But at the same time, you know, my job is... Um, convincing people in Washington that this stuff is important. And um, we're, a, we're a nonprofit and money is not easy to come by. So it's, I, I take my trips where I can and really try to capitalize and make the most out of them. Yeah. So what's your take on what's happening in the U.S. right now regarding, just give me the short story, <laughs> reproductive um, maternal health, here and abroad. Go. <laughs> <laughs> We've we've got a real tough road ahead of us, I think. Um, I no longer give predictions because I have been wrong so much around U.S. politics for the past year and a half. Um, I I am in good company in that, at least. Yeah, we've all been wrong. But um, I I think it's it's going to be a really complicated road. Um, I think we're really worried about foreign affairs assistance in general from the U.S. government, not just reproductive health. Right. um, And whether it's sort of the bedrock of our foreign aid programming, which is really focusing on need and on helping people who are vulnerable, is uh, how we decide where we focus our energy versus political considerations. That is something that may change. there's questions of, of where our priorities will go. Um, and I think we're in a situation where family planning and, and helping women time and space their pregnancies, which is really one of the most effective ways to avoid maternal and child deaths, is is really getting treated with a lot of skepticism. I know. So the can, U.S. – go ahead. Can you explain the global gag rule a little bit? Sure. Um, so the global gag rule, which is also known as the uh, the Mexico City policy, is a presidential initiative that was first in, um, introduced by President Reagan in the 80s that basically says in order to receive certain types of U.S. funding, um, organizations have to pledge that they will not uh, fund or advocate for or provide information around abortion, particularly as a method of family planning. Um, And basically that was introduced, it only affects foreign NGOs. Um, So NGOs not based in the US. US NGOs have first amendment protections and it's it's viewed, this is viewed as sort of a, a restriction on speech. 
And so it doesn't cover U.S. NGOs. But if you're a foreign NGO, whether you're, you know, to use CARE as an example, CARE UK or CARE France or a country office like CARE Uganda or, or CARE Peru, um, actually, I don't even know if we have a CARE Uganda anymore, but just to use that example, if this right. would apply to you. And so every Republican since Reagan has sort of implemented this policy, every Democrat since Reagan has rescinded it, and President Trump really three, maybe three days into his administration, um, re-implemented it and expanded it a little bit from normal. It used to only cover family planning funding. So if you were receiving family planning funding from the U.S. government, you had to provide this pledge that you were not referring or um, performing or providing information about abortions, even if it's with your own money. The Trump administration appears to have expanded the, the rule to cover all aspects of global health, which is a lot more people getting caught up in it. Um, just to give you some example, um, last year, about $575 million was um, allocated for family planning funding, whereas the whole global health account is in, I think the, you know, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think it's around $8 billion around there. But it's, it's a 15 or 16 fold increase of um, the amount of impact that we'll, we'll see in terms of organizations and funding. Do you think it was intentional? Do you think that there was, is there any way that he didn't know what he was signing? I, I don't even know how to ask that question, Ben. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think it's, it's been very hard to figure out what's going on with this administration, but, but I will say that there are, there are a lot of people who've been working on this for a long time, um, particularly since the election. And I, I don't think this was done in a slapdash way. I think if if it was done, if they took exactly the the reinstatement that George W. Bush did in 2001, then you could argue that this was done sort of pro forma just to do what every Republican administration has done. I think that the fact that it was, quote unquote, expanded and, and a policy that's very difficult has become more difficult speaks to a bit more deliberation. But I don't know. And, and like I said, I don't I don't make guesses anymore. Yeah. It's just gotten too opaque. Yeah. Yeah. It's startling. It's very shocking. Yeah. Well, let's shift gears away from that. <laughs> for a moment. Tell me what you've seen in your travels that is universal when it comes to maternal health. Oh, that's sure. That's a great question. Um, I, I think, and if I can expand the question to both maternal health and gender, again, yeah. so interrelated. Um, I want to turn your, your supposition at the beginning of our conversation on its head a little bit. And one of the things that I've seen that is universal is the importance of engaging men and, and the role that men play and the positive impact, something that so many people feel is just focused on women, has on men. Um, you know, I've, I've seen projects on 
health and gender equality in, in South Asia and in East and, and Southern Africa. And really, you see very quickly that, yes, obviously women are tremendously empowered when they get the care that they need and have the the ability to to make the health choices they'd like and, and get their own income and and really um, stand up on their own. But it also, it empowers, it has a communal effect. Mm-hmm. And it empowers not just them, them, but their families and their communities. And I think it's something that you see very quickly men become won over by it. And, and I think that's resonated a lot with me because, as I've said, I'm often the only man in the room. And so it's, it's wonderful to see in the field where, where this stuff matters tremendously that, that men are very much a part of the solution. Um, so that's one thing. I, I think also just the – how simple all of this is in a lot of ways. We're not – when we talk about ways to improve maternal and child health, particularly when you look at the highest impact interventions, which is a lot of it is family planning or water and sanitation or, or things like that, it's all very, very simple stuff. We're yeah. not – we're not kill, you know, curing cancer or, or trying to get to the moon or something here. It's things we know, things we absolutely take for granted here in the United States, um, and, and things that are easy. It's just a question of being able to scale it up and, and having the, the wherewithal and the resources to do that. Some of it isn't easy, though. I mean, when you look at the actual implementations, like, you know, building a well and making sure there's a safe faucet, or you know, providing certain medications to make sure women don't bleed to death. Those kinds of things are actually very simple, I agree. But then there's the cultural issues, the, you know, long entrenched cultural issues of gender equity that, you know, we've, we know about, that's harder. I think that we are changing the culture, though. I, I think we are changing the culture, though, both here in the U.S. and around the world in the fact that, um, Men and men are taking a more active role in their family and reproductive life. We see it here. We see more and more dads being um, engaged parenting partners. Yeah, I think that's true. I think obviously, sort of implementation and service delivery is is the easiest. It's it's incredibly important, and not to diminish how hard it can be, especially in a in a place that's dealing with a conflict or a crisis. But getting something from A to B or building a well is pretty pretty easy, and and changing cultures and changing attitudes is harder. But what I've found, and and I think you're seeing it in the U.S., is that change really has to come from people themselves. And I think we've seen a recognition in the U.S. of the important role of gender equity and and how important it is for men to be involved and how it makes um, relationships and and lives and careers for both men and women better and more fulfilling. And it's not that different from what you see in a lot of the places where care and other organizations work. Um, Mm -hmm. It's driven by people living these experiences and, and really seeing that that these are positives. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when I talk to people about advocacy and lobbying and, you know, I, I kind of relate to how it's really all about relationships, about building relationships with the people who can implement change. And 
you know, that takes time to build a relationship. And a lot of people can't really see how that relates to them and what they can contribute to making change happen. Um, But tell me about, you know, some of the relationships you've built on Capitol Hill and through the humanitarian sector that help you do your work now, now that we have a really different political climate than we did a year ago. Sure. That, that's a great question. I think, um, for me, one of the most important things and really one of the biggest challenges being a lobbyist or, or advocating for these types of issues is you don't have a constituency. Um, poor people overseas don't vote. They don't camp, you know, make campaign contributions. They don't come to town halls or things like that. And so you really need to depend on the interest of the people you're advocating and, and lobbying and, and support from Americans around the country who, who have decided this is a priority for them. And there are lots who do, but there are a lot more people who are going to write to their member of Congress or call the president about health care or gas prices or something sure. like that than they are about ending preventable maternal and child death around the world. And so part of what I've really focused on is how to make this relevant to to people in in these agencies and in, in Congress and also understanding the world that they're in, that they are often under constraints politically, that they may want to be more helpful than they can be and being willing to understand that. That doesn't mean we don't hold people accountable or make our feelings known when someone does something we disagree with. But what we do work very hard to do is is understand where people are coming from. So, you know, perhaps I'm talking to um, someone in Congress who represents a, a very rural district and they say, well, how can we, um, how can I justify sending money overseas when we have so many problems in this rural district that might be poor and, and have real similar access to health problems. And and my response would be, well, you talk about the commonalities of this, that in a lot of ways, um, that's the type of place that's most likely to be understanding of the challenges that the people care serves or or other groups serve face. Sure, sure. Because there is that that commonality. So that's, that's something that's been very helpful. It's also just information sharing. When you work on the Hill, you know, you're, you're a mile wide and an inch deep. And same with a lot of government agencies as well. Um, when I worked on the Hill, at one point, my portfolio was defense, foreign affairs, intelligence, veterans, homeland security, and postal affairs. So basically everyone who wore uniform but police. <laughs> and you and, had to know a little bit about all of it. Yeah, exactly. And so anytime I could get good, solid, timely information from people, it just made my life easier. So a lot of my job right now is just providing that information to people. Yeah. Um, it's education see, person by person. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's where your, um, <clears throat> excuse me, your mad, crazy communication skills come in. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And that's really what advocacy is all about. It's really about wherever you are in whatever capacity you can provide it. It's having those conversations so that people have a better understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got to appeal to their better nature and hope for the best and cross your fingers and light some candles and don't make predictions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's accurate. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Is there any specific policy you want people to know about right now? Um, I think, you know, the thing that I I work on for care and, and has really become something that's very important to me is the importance of international family planning um, or, or helping women time and space their pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not going to get all numbers heavy, especially since I don't have my notes in front of me. But... Yeah, please don't. <laughs> we could but... say a lot, a lot, a lot of women yes. could be yeah. impacted um, by this. Yeah, this number, I do remember one number, which is that if, or two numbers, there are 225 million women around the world who would like to space their pregnancies, who don't have access to the tools or education to do it. And if that need were met, we would drop, reduce maternal deaths by 30%. Yep. So that's sort of the not rocket science I'm talking about. We know how to prevent 30% of all maternal deaths. Um, It's just don't, just don't make women have back to back to back to back babies. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and allowing women to decide and couples and families to decide when, if and how many children they're going to have. Really as right. simple as that. Right. Right. Yeah, it is as simple as that. And any obstetrician will tell you that the safest possible pregnancy is the pregnancy you don't have. <laughs> Yeah, although that could be said about a lot of things. Well, yeah, um, it could. Yeah, yeah. It could, but there's always an element of risk. And, yeah. you know, I think that here in the United States, a lot of people um, <clears throat> don't realize that, you know, if you're on your sixth pregnancy in 10 years and you live five miles away from any sort of maternal health care, your risks are pretty high that you're going to have a problem. If you're able to avoid getting pregnant every year, every two years, and you could just take a little break, not only do you have a better chance of surviving that pregnancy and birth, but your kids are going to be healthier because you have more resources for them, both personal and economic and, you know, all of it. You've got more for them. And um, you also have more opportunity to live the rest of your life that isn't reproduction related. I mean, there's just so much going on. It's so simple. It really is. It's so simple. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it's the most politically strife measure that we talk about. And this is where all of us have to provide that advocacy. We have to say, no, this is what it's really about. Exactly. Exactly. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Um. I am, I think we have a really tough road ahead of us, but I am optimistic that there is a really strong core of support, both in Congress and really among the American people to, to continue to push these issues. So that's, that's my way of hedging and saying I'm both optimistic and pessimistic (laughs) at the same time. Ben, I knew you were going to hedge it. I knew you were going to hedge it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're on that knife edge, huh? Where on any given day you can go to either side. Yeah, I think that's accurate. <laughs> yeah, you are in the hotbed of where shit's going down. It's every time I go to DC, and I love DC. I love DC. I can feel the edginess. It's just a vibe that goes through that town. People, you know, are doing important work, and it's. Um, both positive and negatively stressful, and you can feel it. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's, it's. I've never quite felt it be as electric as it is right now in in this city. I bet, um, I bet. I was just there for inauguration and the women's march, and I could feel it then. 
And uh, I bet just every day increasingly more. There's a lot at stake right now, a lot. Yeah, yeah, there is. But it's also, I think, one of the hardest things, and, and this is something that I'm struggling with as an advocate and a lot of people I work with in this community or other communities, um, you know, it's a very uncertain time, regardless of where you are politically, and you're sort of surrounded by it. Yeah. Um, anywhere in the United States, through the news and things like that. But and if through you... social media and mm -hmm. every conversation in your coffee shop. Yeah. Yeah. But and and so it's really everywhere. But if you add on that, if you sort of work in this field, you you have to deal with it eight hours a day, no matter what. And so there is a level of, of burnout or, or exhaustion that a, a lot of advocates are dealing with right now. And, and a lot of interesting focus on self-care and, yeah. and reinforcing each other that I'm seeing in D.C., which is really wonderful and shows how close of a community it is. And in my neck of the woods, which is not, I mean, Portland is about the polar opposite. We are the chill city. <laughs> we are relaxed here. Um, but even here, I am seeing a huge uptake in people desperately wanting to become civically engaged. People are showing up at every protest and people are just really eager to engage in advocacy. So I'm... You know, I'm always telling people, well, this is how I started doing this. Um, mm -hmm. But there are a million ways to plug in. Just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions. Sure. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Oh, that's a tough one. I know. Um, <laughs> well... Nobody ever told me I'd be working in, in reproductive health or gender issues. Um, I think nobody ever told me that this type of work would be both as fulfilling and exhausting as it is. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good answers. All right. So the last question then is, where are you in your life in terms of parenthood or motherhood? Um. That's that's a good question. I have a pretty boring answer to that. Okay. Um, I, I am uh, not at the moment on the road toward, well, certainly not on the road to motherhood, but um, not on the road to fatherhood in, in any way or, or parenthood in general. Uh -huh. um, but it's it's certainly, I'm, I'm Uncle Ben to lots of my friends' kids, which is great. Um, so your and, relationship to parenthood right now then is... Um, in relationship to the parents that you meet in your work and your own parents. Yeah. Yeah. And, and friends. I have a lot of friends who I get much more sleep than <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> yeah. You're in the age range where I bet a lot of your friends are having small children and yeah. 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 And I, it's, I, again, being the friend of those is really the best deal because I get <laughs> to play with the kids and then leave when they get upset. Yeah. And go catch some sleep. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you don't have to worry about the child care responsibilities. And I cannot imagine how people manage the kind of work that goes on in Washington, D.C. and child care and school schedules. And then you get, you know, a day where the kid is sick. I don't know how people yeah. manage it there. It's it's tough. I mean, I think working in the NGO field and certainly working for an organization that prioritizes maternal and child health you get very good policies and very understanding staff, but it is, it's really, it's hard. And, yeah. and I think Washington is getting better, 
but I think it's still one of the most difficult cities to be a parent. Yeah, yeah. Somebody that I was there, I can't remember who it was that I talked to, um, <clears throat> but they mentioned that they had to pay something like $3,000 a month for childcare. That's yeah. an entire salary for most people that work in, you know, nonprofits and yeah. certainly, oh my God. Well, you know what's going to happen is people are going to get really, really creative about this. Yeah. And yeah, I, hopefully. I think that we see a lot of that in, in our industry. Um, there's a lot of remote work. There's a lot of conference calls. People are doing it at home. And I, you know, lots of times I'll be recording a podcast with somebody and there's a child in the background and that's just fine. That's how we do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Ben, this has been a really fun conversation. I love chatting with yeah, you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Happy to. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Jimmy. Bye-bye. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Our guest today was Ben Weingrad. Um, you can learn more about Ben's work at care.org or careaction.org. Uh, you can learn more about me, Jeannie Faulkner, at JeannieFaulkner.com. You can tweet me at Jeannie Faulkner. Um, email me, Jean at Jean Faulkner. Go pick up a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy, and probably most of your pregnancy and birth and early days questions will be answered in there. And um, thank you for being with us. This podcast is growing and growing and growing. I love it. Um, it's produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios in Portland, Oregon. We're going to talk again next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.